All right. Well, then we were talking about um, we we're talking about one-dimensional photonic crystals last time, which uh, we call layers or periodic media. And now we're going to generalize that to two and three dimensions, and so we'll give it a, a little bit more interesting name: photonic crystals. These are a relatively new development in optics. They are engineered materials that have periodicity. This is our one-dimensional photonic crystal, just layers. Have periodicity in two or three dimensions. So you can see sort of what a two-dimensional photonic crystal might look like. Um, has some periodic structure with translational symmetry in one direction. And then a three-dimensional periodic crystal is similar, in a sense, to an actual crystal. And then it has a unit cell, and it repeats in three dimensions. But these points that are drawn here don't represent an atom or a molecule in some unit cell. They represent a chunk of homogeneous material, so some macroscopic size of, of material that tends to be on the order of a wavelength or at least when it's on the order of a wavelength, we get interesting properties out of these devices. Um, they're fairly difficult devices to build. Um, you can imagine that in order to lay down um, micron size strips with a regular periodicity, that requires some specialized manufacturing um, and doesn't scale to sort of large sizes. There's a couple exceptions to that we'll talk about today. Um, one is uh, extruded objects for uh, crystal fibers. But for the most part, these are things that are grown meticulously in vacuum chambers and research labs and aren't available commercially yet. Which is all a way of saying you wouldn't bother to do that unless you were going to exploit some interesting properties. And so as a result, these always have dimensions that are comparable to a wavelength. Um, that said, there's nothing about these crystals that is unique to optical frequencies. And so typically, the designs that we'll talk about and the behaviors that we talk about are first tested at microwave and RF frequencies, where things like this can be built uh, assembling uh, physical materials like uh, Legos. Just building it together, lasting with RF waves, and you can get uh, the same types of interactions. And then once you sort of verify the behavior, then you can work on finding a way to miniaturize it. OK, so in these crystals, we'll start with two dimensions. We'll generalize to 3D. Um, so in two dimensions, the permittivity, if you describe it across that uh, transverse plane, is a function of x and y. We'll choose x and y just to be concrete in our transverse coordinates. And it repeats. It repeats with a periodicity of capital lambda sub x in x and a periodicity of capital lambda sub y in y. And it repeats every time that the, the position changes by that amount. So we can put an arbitrary integer in front of those uh, wavelengths and we'll reproduce the function at its uh, starting point. So like we did for one dimensional periodic material, we can expand epsilon in a Fourier series. So now it's a two-dimensional series. So we'll call those coefficients, before we called it uh, L, epsilon sub L. 
Now it's going to be epsilon sub L1 and L2. And like we did for one dimension, we can write a block wave vector, or a block wave that has some amplitude, which is going to be periodic in x and y. It's going to have the same periodicity as the underlying material. And it has components at what we'll call kx and ky. It has uh, wave vector components. And so that amplitude has an oscillating phase in x that's given by kxx, and an oscillating phase in y that's given by kyy, and may or may not have a component of the wave that propagates along z. And since there's no periodicity along z, if there's a propagation along z, that's just whatever mode we have in the xy plane is going to propagate along z. So that propagation constant is just a normal propagation constant. These other ones are capital letters to denote that they're coupled to other frequencies in the transverse plane. Okay, so if we say that this is one mode of propagation, then we can add up all the modes and produce any waveform. It's just the standard modal decomposition of a field. Um, a couple notational comments. We will keep track of this. The, uh, the wave vector or the wave number associated with a certain periodicity in the lattice, um, we will call that wave number g sub x if it's measuring the periodicity along x, and g sub y for the periodicity along y. Those are called the, uh, the reciprocal lattice vectors. Call them the grading k vectors when we talked about one-dimensional gratings. Uh, so that'll simplify our notation a little bit. And so, again, like we had for one-dimensional case, um, because all of these possible k vectors are coupled to other plane wave k vectors that differ by an integer multiple of the reciprocal lattice vector, then we only need to um, define the amplitude of the block waveform for k vectors between uh, 0 and the reciprocal lattice vector in y, and the same thing along x. If we've done that, then we also know the block waveform amplitude at uh, integer multiples of those, of those k values. So here's a two-dimensional structure. And it can be defined by some lattice. This is a rectangular lattice. Um, it's pretty common to have hexagonal arrays of tubes or, or uh, cylindrical structures, in which case this would be a hexagonal lattice. But this lattice then has what we call a reciprocal lattice. So there's a certain spacing along x that gives rise to a certain spatial frequency along x, and a certain spacing in y that corresponds to a spatial frequency along y. So this reciprocal lattice, um, every point on the reciprocal lattice represents uh, one, we call it one Fourier transform component of the possible frequencies in the transverse direction. 
Okay, so the zero point would represent a constant amplitude field across here. Uh, moving over one would represent a field that across the, the structure has, I guess, uh, half of a period. And then going out to two would be a full wavelength across this crystal. And so the further away you are from this point on the crystal, the higher spatial frequency this represents. So this is just the reciprocal space or the, the inverse space of this uh, physical lattice. And the reason we do that is because we need to define our block wave amplitude at spatial frequencies that go up to one reciprocal lattice vector in x and y. And so if this is our reciprocal lattice, we only need to define, um, for example, one sort of unit cell of this lattice. If we know the wave vector or the waveform amplitude at all points in that unit cell, that gets repeated in every unit cell. So, or equally, we could look at this yellow region right here, um, and that completely defines if, if we know the wave the waveform amplitude for all wave vectors within this yellow region. If we tile that out we can fill up the entire reciprocal lattice, and we know the wave vector amplitude everywhere. And some symmetry properties allow us to reduce this even further, um, in this case, to this little triangle here, which is 1 eighth of that region. And then that just gets mirrored around. Um, this we call the irreducible Brion zone. And if you know the wave, the wave getting tripped up on this. We know this, the amplitude of the block wave vector for all values of kx and ky within this zone, we can construct the wave amplitude at any, um, at any frequency component. So one of the things that we did before is we looked at the dispersion relationship. We plotted omega versus k and found that there were regions where uh, there was no allowed k vector for a given frequency. So we had a couple different plots. Last time we had a plot that looked like this, where it was plotting omega versus k. And the time before that, we had a plot that showed bands. That was uh, omega versus theta. But theta is related to the component of k in the z direction. So this is a form of a dispersion relationship. This was a dispersion relationship. Uh, in this case, what we would need is sort of a three-dimensional plot. If we look, here's a Brion zone irreducible Brion zone. Um, the plot of omega versus k, there's two dimensions that k can have. There's an x and a y component. So we need a two-dimensional plot in k and then the third dimension in omega. And then we would need every point in that space to maybe be represented by a certain color or something. So it's, it's a sort of contour plot that is not easily visualized or created. So the dispersion diagrams 
that we have for these typically do the following. Um, if you trace out uh, the values of k going around the edge of the irreducible Brillouin zone, you can, for every value of k along that line, you can use the dispersion relationship to calculate omega. And then you can plot that. And here is one of those plots, omega versus k. And this is from your textbook. k is it's going from points gamma to m to, I can't read that, l, maybe, gamma to m to l and back. So this uh, the, the, or, the abscissa, I always have to think about that in order to figure out ordinate abscissa. The abscissa is, um, is not a particular direction in k or a particular value of k. It's just uh, parametrically following this line. The ordinate is omega. And the shading on the, the, on the plot represents um, the presence or absence of a, of a band gap, um, or the, I guess the sign of the imaginary part of k. And so the, the dispersion relationship gives us these lines here for this particular geometry. And what we can see is that there's regions. This is for, I think, TE and this is TM, maybe the other way around. But you can see there's a region of frequencies where for either polarization, there's no um, allowed region. There's no allowed solutions. So that's bound on the bottom by this plot and on the top by this plot. And you might argue that this is only plotting the perimeter of this space. And that's true. But you can think of any point in the interior as being a linear combination of points on the perimeter. And if no k vector on the perimeter gives you an allowed solution, no k vector in the interior can either. So what is this? What is this device? If you're operating at this fre frequency in this band gap. Mm. We'll assume that it's made entirely of dielectrics that are lossless. So there's no energy going into the material. So it's a mirror. And in which directions is it a mirror? So yeah, either of the two. For these plots over here that we had, um, this was like a plot for our layered material, where we have a high and low index layer. And at a particular frequency, um, you get a range of angles at which it's a mirror. Right? And when, you're, when you deviate from those angles, it no longer functions as a mirror. Here. This is being plotted in two-dimensional transverse space. And it says that for any transverse k-vector, 
there's a band. This is a mirror for any light, for light at any orientation in the transverse plane. And that's called a, a 2D complete band gap. This ignores uh, three dimensional, this is just a two dimensional structure. Um, but you can also have three dimensional band gaps where you have devices then that are mirrors for light incident at any angle. So it's a little bit of a holy grail in the sense that it's a perfect mirror. It's a perfect mirror within a set number, within a set range of frequencies. But within those frequencies, at any angle, it's a perfect reflector. And so if you have a perfect mirror, you can guide light that bounces off your mirror many times without worrying that the absorption will eliminate the, uh, the power in the light when it gets to the other end of your guide. And the thing that we guide light with over long distances is fibers. You can make a fiber that has a cross section that looks like this. This is a glass. And these are basically air holes, tubes running through the fiber, very small tubes on the order of a wavelength. So this whole thing might be uh, 10 to 100 microns thick. And these individual tubes would be on the order of a micron. And it's nothing but glass. There's no high-index core. There's no other materials here. But what's interesting, what you notice probably, is there's one hole missing. And so the center region behaves like normal glass. And it's surrounded by one of these two-dimensional periodic structures, which at the right frequencies can be perfect reflectors. So now the light that's in the core uh, is bound by not total internal reflection, which is what you have in a step index fiber, but it's bound by this uh, the band gap that surrounds it. And so you can get lossless transmission through a fiber. Um, and as I've drawn it here, this might appear to be to give similar behavior to a, a conventional fiber. The light's going through glass in the middle. So a lot of the behavior of the fiber is dominated by the material that the light is propagating and not the material that binds it. Um, but we'll see that there are some interesting, uh, interesting effects that come from having this type of geometry. So this geometry drawn here, where there's a regular uh, structure to the holes, uh, operates, in what we call that a photonic crystal fiber. It operates by photonic band gap guidance. Um, there's a very similar type of fiber that operates in what we call effective index guidance. And so I'll describe both of those. A couple parameters. The spacing between the holes we'll call capital lambda to be consistent with what we were calling our, uh, our two-dimensional photonic crystal in fiber design that's often called the pitch of the holes. And then the hole diameter is called D. 
and those are called holes. So these are also called holy fibers. Okay, so I mentioned that these structures tend to be difficult to make because they're uh, made up of very small scale uh, structures, and then if we want kilometer length uh, objects, how do you reconcile that with the need to to produce this uh, sort of micro size structure? Um, the reason these appear in fibers and you can't buy other two-dimensional photonic crystals from companies yet is um, lies in the way that fibers are fabricated. So I've got a couple slides that show it. And uh, a little while ago, I was surfing the web and found a good YouTube video that I kind of like too. So let's watch that instead. It's at times a little bit Every time you talk on the phone basic, or go on but. the internet, what you say or type travels to its destination through fiber optics. The process of transmitting voice or data via pulses of light through pure human glass fibers. Those fibers start out as large glass tubes. First, workers are massive. I like that. <laughs> it's completely unnecessary detail. <laughs> This is a step index fiber being manufactured, a conventional fiber.
just he didn't cut that. He scored it, and once there's a score, it it cleaves. When they say they're expensive to produce, um, in terms of anything that you'd do in in physics laboratories, they're not expensive. Yes. Okay. So that's how a conventional fiber is made, and and the uh, the germanium soot uh, doped the glass on the inside and increased its index. And that was the core that guides the light through total internal reflection. That's not the principle that's used in these holy fibers. But the basic fabrication process is really pretty much the same, uh, maybe, maybe even a little simpler. The tubes start as capillaries that are very thin, and they're stacked together in what's usually a hexagonal array, just based on the cylindrical geometry and how they pack, to form the preform. So that's the first half of that video, is getting that soot inside and melting it and all that. And this is just a matter of mechanically stacking them. Um, they're heated to the point where they start to melt and they're pulled in the same fashion that that uh, conventional fiber was. So this just shows that process. Um, it's a little bit like eating cheese pizza. You can get miles and miles and miles of cheese out of a very small pizza. And it's the same idea here. Um, so just a little bit of uh, engineering or a little bit of uh, physical alignment of the material that goes in the preform can yield uh, very long lengths of cable. Okay, so let's start with the effective index guidance. Guidance, guidance. Um, the idea here is that if your if your holes are smaller than the wavelength of lights, uh, significantly smaller, then essentially the light can't resolve them. It doesn't see them as holes. It just sees them as uh, just sees the average of the material in sort of a wavelength uh, diameter volume of space, and as a result, that index that it sees is decreased by the absence of material in that in that hole, and we can we can argue that the average index then has to be the spatial average of the index of the material. So if A is the cross-sectional area of your, of your material, and A sub hole is the area of occupied by the holes, then this is the area occupied by the material. That has an index N. 
the remainder, which is in the holes, has an index of unity, assuming they're either air or vacuum. And so we can average that over the full area, and that gives us the effective index seen. Okay, and that's under the assumption that the wavelength is much larger than the diameter. Right? So as the wavelength gets shorter and shorter, as you go to higher and higher frequencies, um, the assumption that you can average the index breaks down. We'll see some interesting, some interesting things happen in that transition. But if you are in that regime where you can treat it as having this average index of refraction, um, then you can write that treating the area of a hole as the diameter of the hole squared times pi, and the area surrounding the hole as being pi times the hole spacing squared. Then the ratio of the hole to the not to the uh, the fractional area encompassed by the hole is going to be the hole diameter divided by the inner hole spacing squared. And so this is the fractional area of the hole, and that's the net reduction in the index in that area. So you can write the average in this form. It's only a function of the material and the geometry of the holes. So if that's your cladding, if that's the uh, outer region of your fiber, but the inner region doesn't have holes, the effective index of the inner region is n, which is higher than n bar, then you can treat that as just a conventional step index fiber with a high index core, a lower index cladding, and total internal reflection guiding the light through. Um, and if you do that, it's not critical that the periodicity of the holes be, well, that they, it be periodic, um, or even that the spacing be identical, uh, the, the diameter of the holes be identical. Just that the diameter of all the holes is small compared to the wavelength, and on average, um, there's a certain average density of holes. But at shorter wavelengths, where this assumption breaks down and the wavelength becomes comparable to the size of the holes, it begins to see the holes. It begins, the light begins to uh, no longer average over the effective indices. And as that happens, the light will be guided, or will, the mode of the light will, uh, will be concentrated in the high index region. You can think of it as the light will reflect off of the holes through total internal reflection. What effect does this have on the dispersion for the cladding? Is my question to you. draw this. Okay, so there's our holy fiber. And at shorter wavelengths, so at longer wavelengths, the mode profile in this fiber is going to be something like this. We haven't 
we haven't covered waveguides yet. When we cover waveguides, we'll drive the mode shape in a fiber or in a, in a waveguide. And we'll see that we talk about the light being totally internally reflected, but the mode actually extends with these exponentially decaying uh, field amplitudes into the cladding. So if this is the mode shape of sufficiently high wavelength light to be guided, as it gets, the wavelength gets smaller and smaller, sort of the ray picture would tell us that the light is going to reflect off of these holes. Right, total internal reflection going from high index to low index. That will get total internal reflection and the result of all the possible rays that can be bouncing around in there give you a larger field amplitude in the glass than you have in the holes. So I'm just going to kind of make this up, what the field amplitude might look like. Just a cartoon of how it might change. In regions where the holes are present, the field starts to exponentially decay. So which of these holes, which of these modes overlaps the holes more? Let me write. So there's field amp for the long wavelength, there's field amplitude in the holes. Which one would see a higher effective index of refraction? The shorter one would, because it doesn't see the holes as much. It, it, the mode amplitude is reduced in the holes, so the effect of the lower index in those regions is also reduced. Um, and so what can we say about the dispersion? As the wavelength uh, gets longer, the index increases. Which by itself is not particularly interesting. Normal glass has a positive dispersion. Call that normal dispersion. Uh, it would be really interesting if the sign of that were flipped. Because then you could cancel out the dispersion in materials. It's not same sign as, as that in regular materials. But the dispersion can be, A, much stronger, and B, engineerable. Whereas the dispersion due to uh, the dispersion inherent in, in materials is difficult to manipulate. It's basically, it is what it is, and you have to work around it. In this case, it can be engineered based on the spacing and size of these holes to manipulate the magnitude of this value and also the functional form of n of lambda. It is less. And so going to a higher wavelength gets smaller. And that is, that is nor it's, it's normal dispersion. Um, Higher wavelength, yeah. Dispersion is normally given in terms of uh, 
frequency, in which case the, the sign is inverted. OK, so um, for typical geometries, dnd lambda can be uh, nearly constant. So the dispersion can be linear. The index, change in index as a function of wavelength can be nearly linear over most of the optical region. And with a slope that's much greater than the dispersion of this normal, normal glass. And so I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but there's a uh, there's a, a parameter, a sort of figure of merit for optical fibers called the V parameter. It's given by this functional form. It depends on the um, difference in index between the core and the cladding. And this V parameter is important in determining the number of modes in a fiber. And I think on this slide I say the number of modes is about 1 half V squared. Um, in fact, this numerical factor in the front varies tremendously based on the geometry of the fiber, whether it's a gradient index, single uh, step index, photonic crystal. And I think on the very next slide, I have a different value. So I, I need to update this slide. But the number of modes in the fiber scale as v squared. v is going to be large uh, when there's a large difference in indices. So a large contrast between the core and the cladding. And that's going to allow a large number of modes to propagate. Another way to think about that is the size of any individual, the size of the, the mode structure is small. Therefore, you can fit many modes into the core. Well, so an interesting thing happens when the index of the cladding is strongly wavelength dependent. If it's strongly wavelength dependent and it's approximately linear, you can get the, um, this numerator to have a wavelength dependence that's linear in lambda. After all, this is linear in lambda. We square it and we take the square root. So the numerator um, is linear in lambda. The denominator is linear in lambda. And then this fiber uh, v parameter becomes independent of wavelength. Since the number of modes in the fiber depend on the value of that fiber v parameter, if the geometry of the fiber is such that it's a single mode fiber at one wavelength, it will be a single mode fiber at any wavelength. Which again, we haven't, we haven't talked about waveguides or fibers. This might be more interesting once we have, but um, typically Typically, this constraint gives you single mode operation. The ratio of the diameter of the fiber to the wavelength used has to be less than some number. This NA is numerical aperture of the fiber. It's square root of N, the core index squared minus the substrate squared. So typically, for a given diameter fiber, 
the wavelength needs to be at least a certain value, a certain cutoff value, in order to have the fiber operate as a single mode fiber. Single mode fiber is generally desirable, has less uh, distortion, um, and maintains the phase front of the, the field much better than multimode fiber. So normally when you buy a, a fiber, there's only certain wavelengths that you can use it at and have it single mode operation. With these holy fibers, that's not the case. Um, the ratio of the fiber diameter to uh, lambda, capital lambda, that's the, the pitch of the holes, um, can, be t can be adjusted such that the fiber V parameter as a function of wavelength um, always stays below the threshold for single mode operation. Yeah, and here I say the number of modes is about V squared. So um, that does a couple things for you. It lets you operate with single mode fiber at multiple wavelengths at the same time. Um, fibers that are used for telecommunications generally are used at 1515 nanometers. That's where erbium doped fiber amplifiers are available to amplify the signal so that it can travel over great distances without needing to be coupled out of the fiber and repeated and put back into the fiber. Um, but there's also low loss in fiber at 850 nanometers, where there's LEDs available to drive it, and at 1310 nanometers, um, where there's indium gallium arsenide uh, phosphorus lasers that are available to drive it. Um, so there's these other bands that are useful or are interesting and uh, normally, if you buy a fiber with a certain diameter, it will work as a single mode fiber at one of those wavelengths, but not at the others. This type of fiber would work at essentially any of those wavelengths. And it's called endlessly single mode fiber. I, I love the name. Um, so this is new. This is, uh, was first demonstrated in a laboratory uh, 12 years ago. And they're now commercially available. It's one of the first 2D photonic crystals that's available. Um, other sort of interesting properties of these photonic band gap fibers, they can have much larger mode area. So this blue line here represented the mode shape, the electric field distribution for the light that's guided in the fiber. And typically, the larger you make the core of your fiber, the larger the mode will be. But at the same time, the more modes you allow. As the diameter gets larger, um, you no longer meet this single mode criteria. Um, with the photonic band gap fibers, you can have large mode area and still maintain single mode operation for basically the same reason. Um, they're single mode for any value of wavelength and likewise for just about any diameter. So these can be made with very large cores to support very large modes. The reason you want to do this is you can't put high power into a fiber. Um, the light's being focused down to a very small size, so high power means I mean, moderately high power on the order of uh, anything over a few tens of milliwatts. Uh, can produce intensities that uh, damage the fiber, that cause nonlinear effects in the fiber. 
Um, stimulated Raman scattering and stimulated Brion scattering are two common problems when you put moderate, intensi moderate powers into single-mode fibers. And uh, what happens is with stimulated Brion scattering, which we'll get to when we talk about nonlinear optics, um, the tightly focused light excites acoustic phonons in the material that form a Bragg grating that then reflects the light. So you send all your power into the, you send your light into the fiber, you turn up the power and it stops going through and starts coming back. So it literally, it, it turns off, it, it no longer allows the fiber to propagate through. By increasing the mode area, you increase the power handling capability by the increase in mode area, well, by the increase in mode area, or diameter squared. So you can buy these as well, these large mode area fibers. You'll notice they're also endlessly single mode operation. Those are related, right? The endlessly single mode operation allows the mode area to be scaled up. Um, Thor Labs also sells endlessly single mode operation with a small mode area. It's just physically the size of this central core is what determines the size of that mode. Okay, so that was a little bit about the, um, the effective index guidance. Photonic band gap guidance is also possible, and that's where this cladding structure operates like a photonic crystal and just has a band gap, therefore unit reflectivity. And what's interesting about that is it lets you, instead of having a solid core, you can have a hollow core. And that's conceptually very different than a step index fiber because you can't think of it as total internal reflection between a high index core and a low index cladding. Now the, the core has a lower index, lower index than the effective cladding index. So it's really not comparable to, uh, to a step index fiber. It's, it's really reflection off of this perfect mirror surfaces. Why might you want a hollow core? Yeah, so that increases the damage threshold even more. Um, it also eliminates the effect of uh, stimulated Brion scattering. You're not going to set up an acoustic, well, I guess you, in theory you could set it up in air, but uh, in practice, um, if you don't have a material there, you don't have the nonlinear effects. There, yeah, you know, I, I wonder that myself. These little capillaries. Can you treat them as just being vacuum? But everything I've seen says air-filled. So I guess what uh, air is made up of nitrogen, which is diatomic and has you know, 20 angstrom size. And these are micron size, so. Um, I imagine you could put it in a vacuum system and pump it out. I don't know if you'd ever get all the air coming out of those fibers. Yeah. Um, right, so hollow core is beneficial. It gets rid of all the problems associated, many of the problems associated with uh, propagating through material. So another one is dispersion. Um, dispersion, it turns out, in, in a glass material is what limits, well, it's what limits the bandwidth of transcontinental fiber. Um, 
material dispersion in glass at 1515 nanometers is about 25 picoseconds per kilometer per nanometer. Um, yeah. And what that tells you is that if you put in signals at one end that are, and can get up to about 100 gigabits per second signals, then your pulses have some spectral bandwidth because they're pulses. You make them shorter, that spectral bandwidth becomes larger. And as they propagate over great distances, the different regions of the spectrum propagate at different speeds and spread out. And if the pulses are too close together, they eventually spread out until they overlap. So that dispersion limits how close your pulses can be that limits your data rate. Um, 100 gigabits per second is still, I'd say, impressive over you know, transcontinental distances. Um, but the carrying capacity of the fiber, if you just look at the absorption of, of silica, is uh, on the order of terahertz, not gigahertz. Um, so getting rid of the dispersion in the, in the core goes a long way to improving the bandwidth. Uh, that said, I don't know that there's any you know, kilometer length fiber installations using this photonic bandgap fiber. There may be, uh, but most of the fiber that was laid to telecommunications was done in the 80s and 90s before these even existed. Um, and I'd say the, the carrying capacity of the fiber that's installed is, is not the limiting factor in, in bandwidth issues. Um, okay, so getting rid of the material in the center doesn't completely eliminate dispersion. The mode still has some amplitude in the cladding, and so the effect of the cladding will still have an effect, but the mode amplitude is reduced in the cladding. Uh, a couple other things that are kind of neat, you can bend these much more tightly than you can conventional step index fiber with sort of a conventional total internal reflection guided fiber. If you have, uh, think of rays propagating at shallow angles relative to the fiber axis, you're going to get total internal reflection on the interfaces, but then if you go around a sharp bend, the angle of incidence may be um, shallow enough that you can get transmission out. So it's called bending losses, and it, it limits how tightly you can spool fiber. Um, that's not an issue with the photonic band gap fibers because they are perfect reflectors at any, any angle of incidence. Oh, and another kind of neat one is when you couple light into this fiber, there's no interface that you're going through. So there's no 4% reflection off the glass interface. And fibers generally are not uh, anti-reflection coated. So in order that 4% power loss may not be significant in terms of power. You can't put high power in there anyways. But if you have these fibers coupled together and you get 4% reflection, you get standing waves inside the fiber and you can get the fiber turning into frequency filters. Um, the way that's typically avoided is the ends are cut at an angle. Um, but that's much more difficult to deal with. If you want to couple two fibers together that are angled, you need to orient the angle of the cuts. So you can't just mate them together with any arbitrary orientation. So there's a lot of practical advantages, and there's really not any increase in manufacturing complexity. So these are kind of interesting 
interesting and recent developments. Um, a few other geometries that you'll see. There are the hollow core, which are designed for uh, zero dispersion. These are some of the operating features. Large operating bandwidth, uh, and virtually no Fresnel reflection light going in. So that's basically what I just described. They also market the exact opposite. The solid core, where the mode is very tightly confined into that core, they sell as, uh, for purposes of having large nonlinearity. So if you are looking to do various nonlinear conversions, um, they will sell you a, a product with what, I guess what one man's bug is another man's feature. So they will sell you that too. Uh, polarization maintaining fibers. So generally, waveguides have uh, two modes of propagation, transverse electric, transverse magnetic. And if those modes each have a similar uh, propagating frequency, light can couple back and forth between them very easily. And in practice, what that means is the polarization gets randomized when it comes out of the fiber. If you need the fiber to maintain the polarization, you need to buy special fiber that's been designed to, uh, to break the symmetry between the two modes. And usually the way they do that is, you can see here, uh, along one direction they've got these larger holes. And literally that just breaks the symmetry and causes light polarized in one direction to have a slightly different propagating characteristic than the other direction and prevents coupling between the two directions. Okay, so those are 2D crystals. Now we can generalize to 3D crystals. Again, the uh, mathematical representation is, is similar. We're just extending it. Um, but because this is now the most general case, um, I use the most general mathematical description so that this description could be applied to any sort of one, two, or three-dimensional case. So we have our permittivity being repetitive in some wavelength. That wavelength I'm defining in terms of three primitive vectors, x1, x2, and x3. You notice I didn't call them x, y, and z because I want to allow for the case where you have, for example, a hexagonal array and your coordinates, your natural coordinate system may not be rectilinear. And if that's the case, you can again expand the permittivity in terms of the uh, different spatial frequency components. G, again, is our reciprocal lattice vector, and it's described in terms of these uh, the reciprocal vectors for the different lattice uh, directions. And the definition of those reciprocal lattice vectors is a little bit maybe daunting, but if we just think about the case where we have a rectilinear geometry, and we'll let lambda 1 be the period in x, lambda 2 be the period in y, and lambda 3 be the period in z, then what this is saying is the lattice vector along x is 2 pi times, this is um, y cross z, which is in the x direction. And down here I have y cross z, which is also in the x direction. And then I have x dotted with x, which is going to be a magnitude. Um, and so I'm going to have like 2 pi over the periodicity in, in x. So that sort of gives me what I would expect in the rectilinear case. 
we're not going to do anything with these equations, by the way, just <laughs> in case you're wondering. And so the uh, dispersion relationship takes on a more complex form. Again, it has uh, vector cross products in it. But um, again, there's a term that looks like k squared and a term which looks like omega squared that have to equal. That's a relationship between omega and k. That's our dispersion relationship. Our field amplitude can be written in terms of the different components added up uh, over all possible frequencies that we would have. And what we will do is look at diagrams of the dispersion relationships and so see how they infer very bizarre um, optical devices that can be manufactured from them. So superprisms, supercollimators, we already talked about omnidirectional mirrors. We'll see high finesse microcavities as well as our examples. Um, in order to do that, it'll be useful to um, use these uh, plots of the dispersion relationship to figure out how light refracts at an interface. The dispersion relationship is a relationship between k and omega. And if we plot contours in k space for a given omega, and if we just start with a very simple case, just glass, isotropic glass, those contours would be circle, circles. And actually what each circle is, this, each circle is a normal shell for a particular frequency. Remember the normal shells from way back when? They were these spheres or ellipses. And if we take a two-dimensional slice through K space, those spheres or ellipsoids would be circles or ellipses. And so for glass, it's isotropic. It's normal shells are spheres. The cross-section in the KX, KY space is just a circle. And at a particular frequency, we have a particular contour here, and that's one of those normal shells. Now, I'll remind you that the group velocity, or the phase velocity, is given by omega over k. So on one of these, sh one of these shells, the frequency is, is defined. And the value of k is just the distance from the origin to a point on the shell. So um, we can find the phase velocity, or we can represent the phase velocity on this diagram. The group velocity is given by the rate of change of omega in k space. Remember, it's d omega dk in one dimension, and it's the gradient of omega, where the gradient is measured in k space. So d by dkx plus d by dky plus d by dkz. What that is, that's the normal to this contour. So at a point over here where the phase velocity is in a direction, say, up and to the right, the group velocity is normal to this surface. It's also up and to the right. And it points in the direction of increasing omega. So increasing omega means increasing values of k, larger and larger normal shells. Right. There's one particular omega, I think, now. There's the phase velocity represented to a point. There's the group velocity. And if this is just an isotropic material, those will be the same, excluding dispersion. Um, OK, so let's look at how we would treat, with this diagram, uh, refraction at an interface. And in fact, these normal shells can be used to derive Snell's law, or used uh, to, to understand refraction at an interface. 
So let's say we've got uh, material 1 over here, where the light is incident on an interface. Material 2 over here, where the light gets refracted. They have different indices, so the light gets bent. And we'll assume that material 2 is a higher index than material 1. So we can draw the normal shells for whatever frequency of light we have. Whatever frequency this incident light is at gives us one normal shell for the incident medium and a normal shell for the transmitted medium. And then if we have a particular direction for the incident wave, that's a particular k vector. And so we can draw that k vector in that direction going out to the normal shell for the incident material. And our requirement at the surface, our boundary condition, is that the parallel component of the incident k vector has to equal the parallel component of the refracted k vector. That parallel component tells me how fast or how many times per meter the electric field is oscillating through a max and a min as I go along the surface. And so uh, whatever its frequency is on the left, it has to be the same on the right, or else the wave would be discontinuous. Okay, so that's where that boundary condition comes from. And what that means in terms of our normal shells, the parallel component of the incident k vector is from here to here. Right? And so if this is my interface. I can draw a line perpendicular to that. And the parallel component of ki is from the origin to that line. Well, the parallel component of k sub r, the refracted wave vector, has to be the same, meaning k sub r has to lie, by definition, has to reach out to this normal shell, but also has to lie along this line. So that requires k sub r go to this point right there. That's the direction of the refracted wave. And because these are circles, the group velocity is going to be in the same direction. These are circles, so the, the normal to the surface is in the same direction as the uh, point on the surface. And you can just take this vector and draw it up here. And if you were to measure the angles, you'd get what you would expect based on Snell's law. And really, this is Snell's law because it's saying uh, 2 pi n over lambda times sine of this angle equals 2 pi times n2 over lambda times sine of that angle. The two pi's cancel out, and you're left with Snell's law. OK, so let's do this now for one of these wave vector diagrams for a photonic crystal. So again, we'll plot uh, contours of different angular frequency in k space. So here's kx, here's ky. Our k space only needs to encompass one uh, irreducible Brillouin zone. And that for a uh, rectangular lattice. So here's our rectangular lattice of uh, holes inside of a material. That irreducible Brillouin zone is one of these triangles here, gamma mx, just like what we saw at the beginning of our 2D photonic crystal discussion. And in fact, this is one unit cell of the reciprocal lattice. And whatever the pattern is here has to get repeated because that's, that was one of our constraints and, and why we said that the unit cell could represent the uh, wave propagation in any, for any possible k vector. So this looks very different right, than just a bunch of concentric circles. And in fact, it has to look different because concentric circles don't give you a periodicity. So the very fact that it has a periodicity means it's going to have these sort of weird things where you have what would have been sort of a circle 
going around the center point, now has to sort of bend up and go around a different center point right, once it crosses this, this uh, edge to the unit cell. So you have these sort of bizarre contours, and that's where interesting things are going to happen, where the behavior is going to be different than in a regular material. Okay, so these are plots for uh, one's TE and one's TM. That really doesn't matter for us. All we care about right now is this sort of bizarre uh, contours. And let's look at a similar case of refraction. Here's a periodic crystal, or, or photonic crystal. Here's incident light. Here is our um, wave vector diagram for the particular frequency that we have. So we've isolated just the contours that represent that frequency. And in black, I have, that's just a normal shell for an isotropic material, air. That's the incident material. And then in red, I'll draw the normal shells for the refracting material. And before, that was just a bigger circle. So it was going into an isotropic material. But now it's going into this periodic structure. And if I choose the frequency right, that contour will be one of those uh, odd, odd contours in the corner. And so if I choose a frequency such that I have one of those, that's one of these red contours. And it's, I've drawn it around every well, I haven't drawn this. I took that out of a textbook. It's drawn around every corner. OK, so we'll follow the same procedure. Our incident light is pointing in this direction. So I'll just draw my incident k vector going to a point on that normal shell. And then I will recognize that my interface is kind of at 135 degrees. I can draw that down here. The normal to the interface then is at 45 degrees. And my refracted k vector has to have the same parallel component as my incident k vector. And so it has to lie along the intersection of the normal shell, which is required for it to be a solution of propagation, and the dotted line, which is uh, all possible values in k-space that are the same parallel component as my incident wave vector. So that gives me a point over here. It actually gives me two points. And OK, so that's a refracted k-vector that points like this. That's not so interesting. What's interesting is the group velocity. The group velocity is normal to the surface, and because I chose an angle that took me to a point that was at one of these sharp transitions, it's, it's at a funny angle, and it's at increasing omega. Omega is increasing towards the center, of, towards this point right here. It's actually like this. And if I draw that ray, it doesn't refract in the direction you expect it to. Okay, now. There's a lot of ways to think about that. You can think of this as a diffraction grating, and this is being like a diffracted wave. In essence, that's what you have. You have the superposition of all the different uh, wave sources from each of these scattering points. And if you think about it that way, maybe it's not so interesting. You shine light on a diffraction grating, it reflects or it diffracts in ways other than the law of reflection would tell you it should. And that's what's happening here. But um, but kind of bizarre anyhow. And you can build some interesting devices from this. One is called a supercollimator. The idea is I've just sort of, without going through each ray, I've sort of sketched um, in black dotted lines um, the direction of rays that are spreading out in, 
say air um, or a, a normal material spreading out from a point and then at the interface with your crystal if it's oriented properly so here's our photonic crystal um, if for example our frequency of, in, of light is such that this is the relevant contour then those rays, the group velocity, will bend to be normal to that contour. And you can see that it can almost be collimated because this is almost a flat surface. So light spreading out and then being collimated, that's what a lens does. But this isn't a lens. This is a flat surface. Okay, and this can actually be used um, to do imaging at better than the diffraction limit, which is kind of interesting. Okay, super prisms. Prisms, one of the main features or, or typical uses of a prism is through the dispersion of glass, the index is different at different wavelengths, therefore Snell's law refracts, refracts the light at different angles, and we get angular dispersion. We can separate different wavelengths into different angles, and it's useful for a lot of things, um, for spectroscopy, for um, multiplexing signals of, of closely spaced frequency. You can make a superprism with this material, and I sort of demonstrate uh, that on this diagram here with an incident ray that's coming out to just the corner of this uh, funny shaped contour. And for a, I guess a lower frequency, so I've drawn it in red. Um, at a lower frequency, just between the threshold, between these sort of circular contours and these squarish contours, um, if we have one of these circular contours corresponding to the frequency we're using, then the group velocity of the light in the photonic crystal is going to be basically in the direction of the incident, incident waves. But as the frequency changes just a little bit to push us over that threshold, the angle of the contour changes and the direction of the group velocity changes. So for two closely spaced frequencies, you can get two largely varying output angles. And again, this is at a planar interface. So um, some potential advantages to that. And the amount of angular dispersion is orders of magnitude larger than what you'd have here. And largely because you can engineer this crystal to have the contours that you want, um, whereas with the material, you're pretty much stuck with what nature gives you. Okay, so um, if you're interested in reading more about these uh, photonic crystals, a lot of this was taken out of an online textbook, Photonic Crystals book, and that's in the notes. Um, I, I just think it's fascinating, and I would love to get my hands on some of these, but like I said, they're not commercial products, so you have to know somebody who's who has a research lab that, that does this. So I will try to make some friends. <laughs>